Welcome to Film Sociology, a film talk show here on WFYI HD to the Point and WFYI.org. If you have a question or a comment, you can email me at msocey, that's M-S-O-C-E-Y, at WFYI.org. I'm also on Facebook, also on Twitter, at Matthew Socey. The show is available as a podcast. It's also available on iTunes. And we have a blog, which someday we'll update at filmsociology.tumblr.com. Just you and me today, we're going to dip into the archives for some old interviews, but... uh. I, I know there's a lot of big movies out there, and I know there's going to be a huge debate, all, and there already is, over the new Ghostbusters film, but not here. I wanted I, I, Sometimes life and vacation and sometimes uh, all the above get in the way of things. However, I am... It's been a point for a while to for me to at least pick out some lesser known movies or even if you know if the liner's too long at the multiplex, you can go check out something off the beaten path, something different. It's uh you can have grown up movies even in the heat of summer. And uh one of the films that's opening this weekend and I'm really glad it's in town is the uh, the French drama Les Cowboys or Les Cowboys, pardon my French literally. And uh this is from uh, uh the film debut of director Thomas Bid, uh, Bidigain, hope I'm saying that right, but he's a gentleman best known as a screenwriter for such really excellent films as A Prophet, uh, Rust and Bone, as well as Saint Laurent. Um, just a fascinating writer with fascinating stories. And in this one, it uh, it stars, well, we have one familiar face. Uh, John C. Riley's in this picture, but it's mainly about... Uh, uh, Starting out in, of all places, a country and weather, western gathering in France. Uh, the film stars Francois Damiens as the uh, the father of this family and what happens when their 16-year-old daughter disappears. And it turns out that she has uh, run away with a teenage boy who has uh, different religious and political beliefs. I'll just leave it at that. And uh, on paper, it feel it, it especially the first half may have a an art house feel of uh, of the, a version of the film Taken. And uh, fortunately, the film is full of surprises. This is what you expect from uh, the the guy who created a prophet in Rust and Bone. And uh, without giving away too much, there is a major character change in the first. In the second half of the film, but uh, if you're into a artier, smarter version of Taken, and I like the first Taken. I mean, it's if you didn't have Liam Neeson in that film, you wouldn't care. Uh, but this is one that's not just about searching for the missing daughter, but it's also the dynamic of the family while it's happening and after it happens. And that's not really an entire entire giveaway. But uh, it's taking something that we've seen plenty of times in films, some uh, in a one-dimensional manner, and this one is, is a much more complex uh, look at searching for family and what happens to your family while searching. And uh, John C. Riley has a has a small role in the second half of the film. But uh, anyway, it's, it's definitely worth checking out. I hope you go see that, and it'll uh, you'll feel better for it. Maybe have ice cream afterwards, but you kind of get the idea. Okay, um, I want to talk about a few other items that are coming up around the area. Of course, at the Artcraft Theater, at the Keystone Art Cinema, at midnight, depending on when you're listening to the show. Uh, definitely a midnight movie. Definitely worth having a cocktail or two with a designated driver, of course. But the Patrick Swayze film Roadhouse. So I know there was a Swayze double feature at the IMA, and the entire IMA summer series is sold out. Good for them. But uh, but yeah, uh, Patrick Swayze, Ben Gazzara, 
uh, <laughs> Sam Elliott, Terry Funk. It, it's ridiculous, but it's also a lot of fun. So that is happening over at midnight at the Art Craft Theater, or I say at the Keystone Art Cinema Landmark Theaters. Now, at the Historic Art Craft Theater, also, depending on when you're listening to this, next Friday and Saturday... At 2 p.m. and 7.30 p.m., they're showing the original Jurassic Park. And according to their calendar, um, on August 5th and August 6th at 2 p.m. and 7.30 p.m., both days, they're showing the James Bond film, the first one, Dr. No. So go check that out. Big uh, big shout-out to Ursula Andress coming off the beach. I'll, I'll tell that story in a sec. Uh, also want to say, also depending on when you're listening to this, uh, Monday, July 18th at the Artcraft Theater at 10 a.m., they are showing the uh, as part of the Summer Break movie series, Race for Your Life, Charlie Brown. So you can see one of the full-length feature films from uh, uh, the, the Peanuts gang. Uh, not as big a fan as the films, even, yes, even as Snoopy Come Home, which made me cry as a little kid, and a boy named Charlie Brown. Good films, but not nearly as great, I think, as the 30 minutes specials so there you go um of course uh, you can go check out films at the tibbs drive-in theater as well as the skyline drive-in in shelbyville so those are out there as well lots of choices here in central indiana now uh if it's too hot for you you want to stay inside and go to the video store uh the the last of the uh uh, the film Allegiant, the last of the Divergent series, that is out there if you're into that. Um, one of the most underrated, if not the most underrated film of the year so far, the uh, the thriller Green Room. Uh, besides, and now it has a special bit of sadness to it because uh, it's one of the last films from Anton Yelchin, who passed away earlier this week. Yelchin is a member of a punk band that's trapped in a green room in a night in a bar that turns out to be a uh, a white supremacist bar and what happens when they witness a crime. Uh, a solid, solid thriller and probably the best surprise of the year. Um, playing the head of the club as well as the head of the uh, that particular white supremacy organization, at least that branch, Patrick Stewart. Uh, playing it as a businessman who just has to clean up some problems around his around his world. Anyway, solid, solid thriller. Um, violent at times, but quick and to the point. But uh, but yeah, it's uh, one of those trapped, uh, claustrophobic thrillers. Definitely worth checking out. Miracle from Heaven is also out on DVD and Blu-ray, as well as Everybody Wants Some. Richard Linkletter's uh, companion piece to Days and Confuse. Is it a sequel? Nah, probably not. But if you like Linkletter and it's shorter than Boyhood, and I love Boyhood. Anyway, that is out there as well. Uh, a couple old titles on Blu-ray. The Henry Fonda Western, The Oxbow Incident from 1943, as well as the Fred Astaire, Sid Charisse musical, Silk Stockings from 1957. Um, as well as Gregory Peck and Richard Widmark in the Western Yellow Sky from 1948. Uh, Crimes of Passion, if you need to have more uh, Ken Russell in your DVD or in your Blu-ray collection, I should say. That's the one with uh, Kathleen Turner as a prostitute. Uh, uh, she's a fashion designer by day and a prostitute at night. It was a 1984 film. Also a bat spit crazy performance from Anthony Perkins in that picture. And uh, the Criterion Collection has put out the film Carnival of Souls from 1962. 
And uh, it was a movie made for television, but still it's a, uh, it's a story I like a lot and I hope someday I'm old enough to play in. But a remake of uh, the film The Dresser. Now, the original film had uh, Albert Finney and Tom Courtney. This one made for uh, one of the cable channels. It was Anthony Hopkins as Sir and Ian McKellen as the title role. So that is a bunch of titles out there on Blu-ray. All right, um, we're going to take a short break, and when we come back after the break, we are going to dip into the interview archives. So stick around. You're listening to Film Sociology, a film talk show here on WFYI HD to the Point and WFYI.org. Welcome back to Film Sociology, a film talk show here on WFYI HD to the Point and WFYI.org. If you have a question or a comment, you can email me at msocy, that's M-S-O-C-E-Y, at WFYI.org. I'm also on Facebook, also on Twitter, at Matthew Socy. Okay, we go dipping into the archives. Uh, that's the beauty of having a show for several years, that uh, a lot of fun chats along the way, and I was talking with my friend Mark Slayton, who uh, inspired me to replay this uh, interview from 2012, not only featuring a very young Emma Sosi in her kids' film correspondent days, but my uh, my chat about literature and movies and television, uh, and and really a fun fun gent to hang out with. Here is my 2012 interview with Neil Gaiman. Well, Neil, I I didn't realize I had royalty in in my in my studio because I know you, you you have an official title, so I need to kiss your ring or your scepter or what your crown. I, I am. I, I have an official title, but only for a week. Really? Um, yeah. You've got to renew that. It's, <laughs> no, I, I, I have inherited my title from, I think, Julie Andrews. And I do not know who I will be handing it on to next year, but I'm, I am the honorary chairman of National Library Week. I'm, I'm, I get to be a spokesperson for all of the libraries in America and... I get to tell people not to close them and to go and use them and to cherish them. Ah, so there's, you came to Indianapolis at the right time. I did. <laughs> Are we chaining ourselves to any libraries in the next uh, couple of days? Well, I'm actually going to be giving a, a big talk tonight that is uh, absolutely sponsored by um, your local library world which is rather wonderful. But no, I won't be chaining myself to any railings or throwing myself under horses. I'm, I'm just going to be urging people to use their libraries and to know what they've got. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we, we're in this world now where I keep hearing people telling me that libraries are so incredibly 20th century, as if, <laughs> as if Google replaced the library somehow and I, trying to explain to them that the nature of information retrieval um, has simply changed. I think with libraries and, for lack of a better comparison, video stores. I know, yes, you can get anything on on the web and get it mailed to your home, and you don't have to see human beings. But I still think, especially a library, is a great example of the search, the search, the hunt, and whether you get what you're looking for or you find something else that comes along your path. Um, I think that's a thrill that needs to needs to remain. I, I look back at the years I spent as a schoolboy, hanging around school libraries, discovering books that I did not know that I wanted. Um, they weren't things that I was looking for. In, in many cases, they looked extremely unprepossessing. I remember some 
very, very old, battered-looking red hardbacks. One was called The Fellowship of the Ring, which seemed an incredibly unlikely sort of title. And, and then they had one called The Two Towers, and there were just two out of these apparently three books. And uh, reading them and then getting to the end of The Two Towers and going, it can't end there. And so going back to the beginning and, and just reading those first two books of Lord of the Rings over and over again. And I don't know that I would ever have picked them up. Um, but they were in the school library and I was reading my way through it. So I read them. And now they're on Blu-ray. And you can't read Blu-ray, really. You can't. <laughs> or you can... Or, or you have Sorry, incredibly yeah. sensitive fingers, possibly, to that, run around the disc. That is true. That's true. Braille. Um, what are you? What are you currently working on? I mean, whatever medium it's literature, comic, film. What? What is a? What's it? What's in your office? Um, right now, it's a bit of a galamalfre. Um, I've got. What am I working on? I'm doing a rewrite of an episode of Doctor Who that I wrote. Oh, I wrote an episode for the current season that was meant to be episode eleven, but we ran out of budget, so. Um, my my episode got bounced hmm. to early in season six, so I'm doing a rewrite to really just to to take care of continuity issues and things from where it was to where it will be. Um, I'm writing a film script for Anansi Boys, my novel. Mm-hmm. I'm working on a nonfiction book um, about China and myth and history, uh, which I'm starting to get into and starting to enjoy. And um, writing writing a little children's book in down moments right now. How how do you select down moments? Or I mean, as far as jug, uh, juggling and writing, I mean, is it based on what cur- you know what creativity comes from this project or deadlines or I mean? Well, there's definitely a level on which um, who is shouting loudest for something <laughs> and, and when it was really due by and when it is due by and, uh, and whether or not their lawyers have started sending letters <laughs> saying, please note the date of the actual contractual delivery has now passed by several years and we will ask for our money back. Um, these are all important things in when, what you work on. And then there's other things like what you feel like working on that day. And I always like to have something on the go in little notebooks just to hand because you never know when you're going to wind up stuck on a plane or a hotel or an airport lobby or somewhere and it's really nice to just sort of go and go visit somewhere fictional mm-hmm. I'm, I'm curious about i love the the idea of the the credit writer slash producer um you know many people say like when they argue about the academy awards that really producer and director best film best picture and best director should be the same and some of us <clears throat> say that best writer and best picture should be the same so i'm wondering i know you were executive producer on beowulf and producer on stardust um how much were you able and i don't mean this way this sort of sounds but i mean how much creative control did you have in collaborating with both directors of those films i think the truth is that film will always be subject to budget limitations, a director's medium. Um, I've now directed a couple of films, not very long ones. I did a half-hour film a few years ago, and last summer I got to... I had enormous fun directing an eight-and-a-half-minute silent movie 
uh, called Statuesque, which got starring Bill Nye. And um, in each case, what I liked best was I had the same power that I have as a writer in writing prose, which is the power of because I say so. Why is it like this? Because I say so. <laughs> it's going to be like this. And that's something that you could have every every producerial description in the book applied to you, whether it's executive producer, producer, or you can be the boss of a studio. And the truth is, a director is going to make the film the director wants to make. And the director is the only person in a film, really, who has because I say so power. How have you liked the film versions of your work so far? I've really enjoyed them. I think I'm, I'm tremendously lucky. Yeah, you, have, um, you have no visible scars, so it seems like it's... No, I, I really don't. I, I, and I'm fascinated by them. Um, I, tend to, I think people think I'm a bit odd because I tend to regard... tend to take an incredibly long-term view anyway. And I, I think I think of film adaptations of my stuff as being kind of like theatrical adaptations, which is they come, they go, they're really interesting, but the book is is still the thing. Um, I love Stardust, the movie that Matthew Vaughn made. I, I was a producer on it. I really, really enjoyed it. I can also absolutely imagine a world in which 15 years from now, 20 years from now, somebody picks up the book, reads it, goes, I love this book. Then they look at the film that Matthew made, and they go, you know, I, I want to do a different one. Mm -hmm. I, I'm reading this book. I'd love to make a movie of this, but it would be a completely different movie. It wouldn't be a sort of rollicking, comedic... De Niro and drag. De Niro and drag. <laughs> the most beautiful thriller. witch in cinema history. Absolutely. <laughs> um, you know, it wouldn't be that thing. It would be something else. Um Caroline, I think, was slightly different in that for Caroline, when I finished the book, and this is when I finished writing the book, oh, 10 years ago, I, I looked at what I'd written and I thought, I would love this filmed. And then I thought, but if you filmed it live action, you're going to get something that no adult would be able to watch without being too creeped out. And I'm not even sure that kids would enjoy it. And I thought, but I love Henry Selleck's work. I'd mm -hmm. loved Henry. Henry most famously directed a film, or before Caroline, most famously directed a film called Tim Burton's The Nightmare Before Christmas, um, which a lot of people, because of the title, think was directed by Tim Burton. Right. But it wasn't. It was by Henry. And I had seen the credits on that, and I had registered who directed it and who made that film. And... Um, Likewise, James and the Giant Peach. So for me, there was only one person I wanted to do Caroline and only one person I was going to send the book to when it was finished, which was Henry. And fortunately for both of us, he read it, he loved it. And then it took us about five or six years to get it set up. And then because it was stop motion, which is the most labor-intensive form of, of filmmaking on the planet... Um, it took, you know, a year of pre-production set building and model building and then two years of, of shooting. And on a really, really good day, they might get 11 seconds in the can. And he has 
of of all the animators out there, I think his look is the most visible. You may not know him by name, but you know that look with the three the three films that you mentioned. Um, and also, I think last year is going to go down as one of the best, if not arguably the best year for film animation between all of the stuff that was nominated. And, and congrats on the nomination. It was so strange um, being in that year. And that we got an Oscar nomination in what may have been the best year for for animation ever was an honor in itself. And that could have been a category with 10. Oh, it, it could easily have been a category with 10. And also, there was a level on which, and I, I say this in the best possible way, Up was nominated for Best Picture, mm-hmm. which meant, and you sort of look at that and you go, well, it won't get Best Picture, but it has to get Best Animated Picture because it's been nominated for Best Picture. So it was the the most stress-free academy awards possible <laughs> we knew that up would win everybody involved knew that up would win and you got your swag bag and went out drinking afterwards and we had a wonderful time <laughs> exactly so from that perspective it was great i got to i got to write the thing that i wrote that i think has had the most number of people um ever seeing it which is 15 seconds of Coraline dialogue in the Academy Awards. I, I wrote that for them, that little scene, and I'm going, I think that there's something ridiculous, like 250 million people watching this right mm-hmm. now. It's fabulous. Um, when it comes to adapting your work, first off, uh, do you have it strictly that, you know, you get to adapt your own work and nobody else, or is it, I mean... Truthfully, I prefer it when other people adapt my work. Okay. Um, and I'm I'm currently battling my way through an Anansi Boys adaptation that reminds me the only reason I said yes to it was the BBC uh, World Service had just done a radio adaptation of Anansi Boys that I had not liked Hmm. and really hadn't liked which meant that about a week after I got a call from Warner Brothers saying they would like to buy the rights to Anansi Boys would I like to adapt it and I was like yes I really do because I want to do this properly. Now that I'm doing it, I'm remembering why I normally say no to adapting other people's stuff, which is simply, in order to build the thing in the first place, your mind goes down certain paths. When you're transferring something into a film, you either want to do exactly the same thing that you did before, which is a bit dull if you're a writer, Mm -hmm. or... You want to do something completely different just because it's fun and you haven't written it. And neither of these is, is I think, terribly healthy for a writer. It's much more fun for me adapting something by somebody else because then I can go with a completely clean conscience. I can look at it and go, well, you know, we can lose that character. I can't do that with my stuff. I, I, I If I go, we can lose that character in the back of my head that character is going no why me i was a good character i was obedient you can't you can't lose me well i was curious also about your your adaptation of of beowulf because it seemed more especially after a certain uh, animated action film had come out but it seemed more like a shakespearean tragedy than say beefy guys screaming and hacking at one another it's it's a very odd film Beowulf, isn't it? I mean, I think part of the fun of that, and 
which is one of the things that some people like and some people don't and different people react in different ways is what Roger Avery and I wrote a script for in our heads was for a 15, 20 million dollar low budget, lots of mud and dirt Beowulf that would have been kind of like Terry Gilliam's Jabberwocky. I was my, my first thought was Excalibur. Uh, we, we, I think in our heads we had a weird mixture of Excalibur, Jabberwocky, and maybe Monty Python and the Holy Grail in terms of that kind of what we were trying to do. Bob Zemeckis fell in love with the script. And then, which suddenly meant that it was a thing starring Anthony Hopkins and Angelina Jolie and people... And Bob is also fascinated right now by motion capture mm-hmm. and by performance capture and by ways of trying to to do the thing where you get to mix live action performances with an animated thing that you're seeing on the screen. So it became this kind of thing that looks like a video game, um, but doesn't necessarily deliver... I, th- I think it, it, for a lot of people, it looked too much like a video game for the people who actually really would have loved the Shakespearean right. oddness. And it was too little like a video game for the people who would have really liked a video game movie. Um, and the people who, for whom it would have been very funny and very weird if we'd actually done it as, as a Jabberwocky thing... They never really got to see that. Um, I, th- I think Roger Ebert was about the only film critic I saw who, who basically said, I think I'm the only film critic who has noticed this is funny. <laughs> and it is funny. And and it's funny. People, it's funny, which I loved. Now, I, I, I went online, because that's where I get all my research, and I saw that there's there's five titles in your IMDb page under In Development. So may I throw titles at you and throw, you can throw titles at? Uh, the, I, I have to say that as far as I can tell, IMDb has the same kind of reliability as Wikipedia, <laughs> which is anybody can go on and add anything they like. Well, we're gonna we're gonna straighten so, this out. So go for it. Here go we go. All right, Graveyard Book, definitely in development. Uh, Neil Jordan is um, is is writing the script currently and is meant to be di- directing it. Okay, um, there's. Serious hope that we could be shooting by the end of the year. Uh, death, high cost of living. Don't know. Um, it's it it it's death, the high cost of living is kind of like traffic lights. You know, I always thought when I was a young person entering the world of Hollywood nervously that the expression "a green light" meant that you actually had a proper green light for your film and you would go. And I didn't realize that it was kind of like traffic lights because green lights for death go on and then they go yellow and then they go red and then they I, go. I was thinking the Monty Python song, but yeah, that's it's, one of the. <laughs> so it's it's very very strange. Um, had you asked me that four days ago, I would have told you that we were closer than ever before to um, to things happening. I'd just been contacted and. The deal had just been done for me to go in and do a rewrite of my original script, and everything was grand. As of two days ago, Warner's apparently suddenly have had a unified field theory for the entirety of Sandman and everything I created, which no longer involves, for which death is now on hold. So I don't know. We'll find out. We'll call you next week. Exactly. (laughs) Road to Endor. Road to Endor is wandering along. Um... 
and it's kind of fun. It's a script that I've written with Penn Gillette of wow. Penn and Telephone. Yes. Um, a true story about some two guys in 1917 who escaped from a Turkish prisoner of war camp um, by pretending to have psychic powers and doing stage magic. And it's a completely true story about these these wonderful people and um, and the producer. There's a producer named Hilary Bevan Jones who I've worked with in London, who actually produced. Uh, she produced uh, Pirate Radio. She produced the Girl in the Cafe, um, and it actually happened to her grandfather. Her grandfather was one of these two people. Oh wow! So she's working with us on it. And we're just waiting for... There is a director that we want. He wants to do it. He's been tied up on a franchise of films that has occupied him for several years now. I believe he's shooting the last of them currently, and then we'll see if he's available. Okay. Interworld. Um, That looks like it's happening, but as um, as a TV series, not as an animated TV series. Uh, not as a movie. Okay. And finally, Black Hole? Black Hole, um, Roger Avery, who uh, I, I did Beowulf with, um, who did Killing Zoe and Pulp Fiction. Yes. Uh, co-writer of Pulp Fiction. And I wrote a script for Black Hole. Um, I guess I'm, as far a, as I know, it's in a black hole right I was now. Saying, is, this a re, is this a remake of the Disney film of the no, same name? Oh, no, 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 no. no. Was... This, is, this is Charles Burns' wonderful graphic ah, novel oh, okay, about right. a sexually transmitted disease that turns kids into teenagers into monsters. Completely. And forces them to go and live in the woods. On a double bill with the Disney film. And, it and, that, black, and that black hole was blue, by the way. <laughs> from 1980. So no, all of the actually that's that's not bad. That all of those films are actually real things. So but, okay. Um, normally, when people say, "Oh, I've seen this on on IMDb," they come up and say, "So are you really doing Doctor Strange with Guillermo del Toro?" And I say, "No, I'm not. I really am not." Well, it, after a while, it just seems like you know. For me, it's like I don't believe it until I see a poster and a trailer. Mm-hmm. So that's when actually things no. have happened. I had I had two friends. Well, basement dwelling friends who were going to come to fisticuffs over Ken Brana playing young Obi Wan in the first three Star Wars, and I was like, "Really, you guys are going to fight over that?" So that's why we check in. <laughs> I I love um, I and I really do love the way that people seem to think that films are inevitable, that writers have supreme control, and. Um, <laughs> And that you can actually tell them what's going to happen with a film. The only thing that I know, having done all sorts of films and having knocked around in Hollywood now for 20 years every now and again, um, is nobody knows anything. And what will happen will happen. And if you'd asked me in 1997 what film of mine was most likely to happen, I would have told you Beowulf. Because uh, Roger, we'd just been given the green light and Roger was about to fly around... Canada, Newfoundland, Greenland, looking for locations. Places with mud. Absolutely. And then if you'd asked me in 2004 if any of the film scripts I'd written would never get made, I would have said, well, definitely Beowulf. That one will never happen. <laughs> That's sitting there. It's, it's this complicated chain of ownership. It, and who, who's going to make that thing? And so I was wrong both times. These days, all I know is that um, they will happen when they happen. And you love libraries. 
And I do love libraries. <laughs> you and you have you have a daughter. I do. This is uh, our film sociology kids film correspondent Emma Sosi, and and I know she's been chomping at the bit. You have you have questions and or comments for Neil. Mm-hmm. I was wondering, um, how long did it take you to write the book of Caroline? Uh, yeah. Caroline. You know that's that that shouldn't be a really hard question to ask somebody. You say how long did it take you, and they tell you the problem with Caroline though. As I'm not really sure. I started writing Caroline in about 1990, maybe early 91. Um, I showed it to an editor who read the first three chapters and said, Neil, it's, which is what I'd written. And he said, it's really good, but obviously we can't publish it because it's horror for children. And that's too weird. Um, and, uh, and then I moved to America. So... For a period of about six years, I would write about two pages a year on Coraline. I'd just go and, and write a little bit. By about 1998, mm-hmm. I noticed, and I moved out here in 92, I, I, I noticed that the daughter I'd started writing it for, Holly, was now probably getting to be too old for it, and that I had a young daughter who was now four, and if I didn't get a move on... She would be too old for it by the time I finished it. So I sent what I'd written of Caroline at, up to that point to my editor, mm-hmm. a lady named Jennifer Hershey. And she phoned me up and she said, it's really good. What happens next? And I said, if you send me a contract, we'll both find out. <laughs> so she sent me a contract. And then, but I didn't have any more time. So instead of reading before bed, which is what I'd always done up until that point, all my life, I started writing before bed. And I had a notebook by the side of my bed. And I would write 50, 60, 70 words of Coraline. And then I'd go to sleep. And then finally, in about 2000, I went on a cruise for the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund, which is a First Amendment organization I'm part of to, to preserve the rights of people who, who read, who write, who draw, who sell, who publish comics. And I was an attraction on this cruise, and I was meant to be working on my novel, American Gods. But my assistant had put, by by serendipity, the wrong notebook into my bag. So I got to this cruise, and I discovered that the, the notebook I had with me was Coraline. So on the cruise, I finished writing Coraline. So the truth is, I started writing it in 1991. I finished writing it in 2000. I have absolutely no idea how long it actually took me to write. Wow. Yes. Sometimes um, I try to write a book and it takes, like, when I was five, I tried to, like, write a book and I got, like, halfway through it when I became six. So it took me to write just half of the book and it only had, like, five pages. Did, did you yeah. ever finish it? Um, I'm still working on it. <laughs> That's good. Yeah. Finishing books is the hardest thing. Mm-hmm. Anybody can start writing a book, yeah. but you know you're a proper author when you finish one. Mm-hmm. Like um, in our school, we're in our classes. We're writing a lot of um, books in our classes, just like small books. I'm loving writing the small books right now. Yeah. They're sort of. Apart from anything else, it's really nice to do something that you can finish by tea time. Yeah. 
Emma, do you have any other questions for our guests? Also, or I comments? was. Um, did anyone help you write Cor- Coraline at all? No, it was all my fault. <laughs> any any glory is mine, and any blame is mine too. <laughs> so, for the people who think that writing Coraline was definitely a bad thing to do, I mm. I, I have to plead guilty. I think it's good. Good. I'll tell you what I did do, though. I stole the initial sort of idea from my daughter. Holly was Mm. about four years old. She used to come home from kindergarten. She would climb on my lap and dictate stories to me. And I would write them down. And they were always terrifying stories in which little girls, normally named Holly, um, would come home from school and discover that their mothers had been kidnapped by evil witches who were pretending to be their mothers, who would then Mm. normally lock them in the basement and then with the aid of ghosts they'd they'd have to escape from the basement pursued by witches and go and try and find their real mother and I thought well that's good I'll write something like that for her if that's the kind of thing she likes that's sort of like what happens in some of my dreams sometimes I think it's what happens in everybody's dreams yeah my dreams involve Terry Hatcher but that's a whole other (laughs) I can't his dreams involve pretty much girls (laughs) especially your mother <laughs> Nia, I, I'm Good sorry. answer. Yes, so oh, I'm, th- I'm the third smartest person in my house. <laughs> Let's it put is this, true. It's true. Let's put it this way. Uh, yeah, it's it's a Jane Austen world. I'm just the dad. Uh, I was curious, what other screenplays have come out recently that have really tapped uh, that you've really enjoyed watching or, or listening to? What's been coming out recently that I've really enjoyed? Um, I loved the screenplay for an education, mm-hmm. Nick Hornby. I thought that was that was beautifully constructed. Um, and actually, the the things that have impressed me no end recently um, are the first two Stephen Moffat mm. episodes of the new season of Doctor Who, because I think Moffat is probably right now my favorite screenwriter. Okay, absolutely fascinated with the way that he'll construct um, a story, and up until now, at least in sort of you know his work in Doctor Who and in in Jekyll, um, he's been the scary one. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting is watching him develop a whole new, um, have, have essentially have to learn a whole new range. He can't just be the scary one anymore. He has to be the um, the welcome everybody in one, and then he has to be the exciting running about one. And it, it's absolutely fascinating. Is it? I, I, I'm curious if, if Doctor Who fans are in England, what Star Trek fans are here in the United States. No. No? No. Not, not uh, as Doctor, rabid? <laughs> uh, well, it's it's a general thing. Okay. I mean, Doctor Who in England is a huge shared cultural experience. You're looking at the kind of viewing figures that tell you that 10% of the population of England is watching this when it's on. Um, I don't know what that would extrapolate to in the US but you're looking at, at at something that is a shared cultural experience and it's a shared cultural experience that goes back 45 years mm-hmm. it's true you got me there <laughs> um, you know it, it's it's what I guess Star Trek could have been right um, it, it, but I think I, I only ask because since then I mean with the, and, and of course it spawned a legion of films and other series and you know they're, they're still talking about it. They're still talking about it, and they're obviously, you know, they made the film last year, so, you know, 40-some-odd years later. But I think it's, it's yeah, like, it's a different 
because there's a Deep Space Nine and there's a Next Generation. It's it would it's not like Shatner and Nimoy for the entire time. Although of, it, it, I mean, the, it seems the, like the, the Doctor Who has always Do- been. Well, the genius of Doctor Who was that that moment in 1966 um, when the producers looked at this fairly popular. And, and it was extremely popular TV show that they'd done. It had already spawned two spin-off movies by that point. Um, and they looked at this and they went, our lead actor is getting too old, too doddery. He's not actually in very good health. What do we do? We want to keep this going. Mm-hmm. And they went, well, he's an alien. He can regenerate into somebody else. <laughs> and the the simplicity of that... Um, gave them something that was unmatched until anything like, you know, The Simpsons came along for ways to cope with the fact that your actors may get old, die. <laughs> I will. I mean, uh, Terry Gilliam's last film with uh, three actors replacing uh, one. Exactly. Oh. Um, um, the glory of, of Doctor Who now is that you have this weird shared cultural experience where for for those of us who have been through this 11 times before watching people whose first experience of Doctor Who was David Tennant go no 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 how can David Tennant stop being the doctor and somebody else will come along this is wrong it will not work and all of us going no no grasshopper this will be just fine you make them walk on rice paper and absolutely <laughs> Neil thank you so much for spending time with us this has been a, a, an absolute thrill well thank you both thank you Emma great questions thanks From 2012, my interview with author Neil Gaiman. Now we go to 2013 and my interview with TNA wrestler and uh, Mrs. Robert Irvine, Gail Kim. Joining me on Film Sociology today is TNA Women's Knockout Champion, Mrs. Robert Irvine, and a really good sport because all the women in my life have to be Gail Kim. Hi, Gail. (laughs) Hi, Matthew. How are you? I'm okay. Yourself? I'm great. And I love being introduced as Mrs. Robert Irvine. I, I wasn't sure what order to put it in, but I just like 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 all the women in my life. I just say yes, dear. So <laughs> that's the proper way to be. We we're just talking about that about who's the boss um, in the relationship. Well, between my wife and my daughter, I'm I think I'm bronze. So it's <laughs> it's, it's a Jane Austen world, Always and I'm just the dad. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> yes dear. So uh, tell me a little bit about what you remember from uh, Ninja's Creed, which I know was also Royal Kill, which I'm sure was other titles. But what do you remember most about the film? I remember um, my memories of it was that they wanted to give me the role. I had gotten the role through a writer I had worked with previously through wrestling. And he knew the director, and they were looking for someone to play this role. And actually, our schedules never coincided, so they were going to recast it. And so I kind of moved on, and then they ended up not being able to find the girl. <clears throat> so they worked around my schedule. And I said, okay, this is great, because this kind of role is like I knew it was, you know, based on being very physical and action-oriented, and that's exactly what I was interested in. So <clears throat> we went there. I went to Washington, Virginia, um, around that area, and we filmed a lot around that area. It was wintertime. The director, uh, Bobber, he was amazing to work with the whole you know it's a very small crew because it's an indie film and so uh it was a nice little you know small family and i hadn't met the whole crew because i was the last to film out of everyone because like i said they hadn't you know uh cast that one role so i was the last to film and 
we did a week of stunt work, uh, me and the lead actor, Alex, and the stunt crew. And I was just picking up on everything really quickly. I mean, I guess because of wrestling and, you know, I just took to the physical nature quite quickly. And then they brought in a swordsman um, who taught me a lot of the sword fighting, and I took to that really quickly. We only did that for about, I think, a day or two. Mm-hmm. And we would rehearse the action scenes from 12 noon till almost midnight every day for a week. So it was a lot. Uh, it was exhausting. And then... Everything went really well. You know, I did all my own stunts because I just felt like, well, I better. <laughs> I better be able to. And um, the, in the end, the director was really happy with everything. And um, I guess the most positive feedback they got when they showed it to audiences was the action scenes. So then he ended up, that's why you see, he put me on the cover of that DVD. And uh, everything actually worked out in my favor when it was, just not really supposed to happen so it was a really great experience i'm glad it really it happened now yeah i think you're definitely one of the highlights of the film and uh and for those who haven't seen it you're basically a, an assassin out to find the last heir of a of a of an ancient kingdom from the himalayas yes yes and i could go more into detail about that but i don't want to ruin it <laughs> <laughs> about the role of who I am. That's fine. I yeah. would say. I would say yeah. if, if it was if it was a choice between uh, you know you some would say female Terminator, but you're you're smaller and better looking than Arnold, yeah. so we can you know you're a female assassin. Yeah, we can just leave it at that. So Je- it was it was so much fun. I love anything physical, obviously, because you can tell by my career. But um, it was a lot of fun, and the actor, the lead actor, was you know a really good sport because. I think in uh, a lot of movies and TV, when you see physicality, a lot of it, they are positioned, so they're really kind of far from each other. They don't really hit each other. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the times, I would really throw him or hit him, and he took it, you know? <laughs> so that was, he was a really good sport. Okay. He had taken jiu-jitsu, from what I understood, Brazilian jiu-jitsu, so he was used to the physicality. Right. So yeah. with, with those action scenes, I, I, obviously your, your your training came in to, uh, to, as an advantage, but did you have to prepare your moves differently for the camera compared to in the ring? No, I didn't, because that's really up to the director and how he wanted to film it. And so my only concerns were if I was going to be getting physical with another person to do it safely, to have the right people um, working with me. And we did, you know, with uh, Alex had a stunt double. But he did a lot of the stuff himself as well. And then we would always ad lib, you know, we'd add cooler things to do and, um you know, we had the right stunt crew with us, and they knew the limitations and the safety, and that's what we worked with. So we didn't really have to change much. We just added more, I would say. So, except for the occasional, you know, accidental taking a punch, but it sounds like everything went pretty smooth physically. Yeah. Well, there's one scene where I run up a wall and land on my feet. Mm-hmm. And the first time we tried it, uh, yeah, I didn't let go of the neck of. I think it was a stunt. I'm not sure if it was a stunt guy or the lead actor. And that could have went wrong. I mean, I could have broken his neck. <laughs> but then, luckily, that he was okay, and we went on, and we figured out the safe way to do it, and it turned out great. And, and I, you know, of course, like I said, the, with the packaging, it seemed like, because there, there have been wrestlers that have starred in films, but they've been most, mostly men. John Cena's uh, yeah. most noted. And it seemed like they were trying to do a push this way only for, for the ladies. Do you do you still get movie offers? Um, No, I mean, we get little offers to do 
you know, little spots. But if it's not the right thing, I mean, I'm not an actor. To be honest, I do acting in my job. Yes. But wrestling is truly my passion. Um, Acting, I give complete respect to actors out there who delve into their roles and become that other person because that's really difficult. Mm -hmm. And I learned that from that. And I would openly challenge myself to do other roles but it would have to be the right ones like physical roles that like that one that I felt more comfortable in but I have to give it like I said to the respect to the people who actually have the passion for acting and do that as a living it's difficult and you I mean and you also have a year-round job there's no season it's just it's constant exactly yeah so you know my job is kind of almost like acting uh stunt work and sports, you know, an athlete all in one. It's pretty crazy. And I actually didn't realize how hard my job was until when I was working for WWE. Mm -hmm. We started doing this celebrity guest host thing every week. And our very first host was, um, uh, what's his name from Entourage, Uh, Ari. Jeremy Piven. Okay. You know, who is a great actor. And he went out there and all he had to do was cut a promo in front of the live audience. And he screwed up. You know, mm-hmm. and I just normally thought, oh, he's an actor. He he'll nail it. And we do all these things all at once in front of a live audience. Have to hit the times and cues, being physical and speaking. And I was like, wow, you know what? Our job is really hard. <laughs> and you don't realize that until you see someone else try to do it. And then on the flip side of the coin, let's see Judy Dench do TNA. <laughs> Yes, we would love to see her fight. <laughs> I'd love to see my husband do it. <laughs> he Uh-oh. always says he can do this. He can do the speaking part, and he looks the part. But I don't know if he can actually handle the physicality. Well, there was the moment where he was standing next to the Big Show. That 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 was an eye opener. Oh yeah, and you could see how big the Big Show is. Mm-hmm. It's crazy. Yeah. So he's very very strong. <laughs> how did you get into wrestling? Um, I got into wrestling when I was a kid. I watched wrestling when everyone did, you know, when Hulk Hogan was huge and Roddy Piper and just when Saturday night's main event was around. And then I stopped watching it. Mm-hmm. And then probably around when I was 20 years old, I started getting caught up in the storylines again. It was like, it's like a soap opera, a male soap opera, and I got caught up. And at that time, the girls were really athletic and doing um, were very strong, powerful women and doing the athletic thing, and I thought, wow, oh, they don't have an Asian girl, and I love this. And I almost became, you know, like borderline obsessed, as all our fans are. They're very loyal and uh, hardcore. And I found a wrestling school, and then, I mean, this long story, uh, keeping it short, is that I just found a wrestling school. Two years later, I got a tryout with WWE, and I got signed, and now I've been wrestling for 14 years. And I, I know you also went to school, right? Uh, you, 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 yeah. You studied, uh, I can't remember what exactly it's called. In, um... I studied kinesiology at University of Toronto for two years. Then I transferred to another university. I mean, they call it college in the United States. Sure, sure. Um, Ryerson, and I studied nutrition there for about a year. And then I realized I wanted to become a wrestler, and I took my tuition money and put it towards wrestling school and I just thought okay I'll tell my parents once I feel like my dream is coming true and uh, which at that time I thought I'll become a wrestler in a year and I didn't know that was an unrealistic goal and it actually happened within two years so I was very lucky and then they kind of figured it out and 
that I wasn't the typical structured um, Korean daughter that they were gonna <laughs> that they thought they were gonna have. Mm-hmm. Well, and also, also I, I I brought up your your schooling because it seems does that help you out physically? Because I mean, you've been doing this for quite a while, and you're 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 not only in great shape, but you're you're up, you're walking straight, you're upright. I yeah. mean, you know, you, we've seen this job take a toll on people, male and female. Yes. It definitely does. Um, I don't know if the schooling actually helped me. I mean, definitely in terms of giving me some education and knowledge about taking care of my body a little bit. But, you know, it's just been the stuff that I learned in school does not really apply too much. I mean, the nutrition part, yes. And I've applied that to my life. But I've just been taking care of my body chiropractic-wise, massage-wise. You know, you don't. You try not to do some dumb things, even though I have done a lot of dumb things, <laughs> you know, high-risk things. Um, I've just been really lucky, knock on wood, you know? Sure. Um, so I just hope that it – to be honest, I've been way more physical in Impact Wrestling, TNA, than WWE. So I've worked for both companies twice. So every time I went to WWE, it was kind of like saving my body because I didn't do a lot of the wrestling. Mm-hmm. In the physicality, but with TNA Impact Wrestling, yeah, there's a lot of because they kind of treat the girls a little bit differently. We're more about the wrestling and the wrestling division, and you know we they don't limit us to wrestling like the guys, and so that's where a lot of the wear and tear comes from. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've had longevity because of WWE. My my dad was a ringside physician for wrestling in Michigan back in the late '60s, early '70s, and and yeah. you know these were guys that were on the road, you know. 300, 320 days a year, and, oh, yeah. you know, between that and the, the lifestyle choices, you know, it it, yeah. did, it didn't end all that, that pleasant, I guess. No, you're right, and, you know, the business has changed a lot uh, probably since then because, they're, like you said, the lifestyle choices, um, there has, you know, in the media, they talk a lot about the use of drugs and deaths, and a lot of that has changed because they've, uh, both companies have instilled drug testing, so mm-hmm. that's really helped everyone in the long run. They help you educate yourself on how to take your care of your body. And it, it's really changed. I don't know anybody right now currently with any type of drug problem. Um, most people are healthy, and if they aren't, it's just, you know, normal wear and tear. Um but we, you don't hear so much about all those problems anymore, which right. is great. And it's also, I think, also we're in a 24-hour news thing. I remember going to a match in in Detroit, and somebody somebody threw a beer at Jim Neidhart, and Jim just decked the guy. And you know that that sort of thing <laughs> yeah. would now be on YouTube with a million hits. Oh yeah, yeah, definitely. And uh, hopefully, you know, fans don't do that anymore. You hear the occasional story, but yep. uh, normally the fans. Uh, they're normally respectful. Yeah. You occasionally get the crazy ones, but <laughs> hey, that's what you're going to expect from wrestling crowds, right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. So, what what action films did you watch growing up? Were they were they influential as well as far as uh, I guess girl power, or you know, was you enjoyed watching the young guys in action movies? Um, I I do enjoy action movies. I can't remember specifically as a kid which ones I watched. I, I t- you know who I really admire in the last. 10 years, and that's Jackie Chan. I know it's so typical, but I love him because he did all of his own choreography, his own stunts. I mean, and how old is he? You know, he's phenomenal, and he's funny. I mean, I love all his movies, and 
the women, anytime any woman has some kind of, you know, ass kicking role, I, I, I really admire that. I love that. I love, um, but I don't like when I see, you know, like a really strong woman, for example, I'm not, I'm not, um, hating on her or anything like that, but Angelina Jolie, when she's in these butt kicking roles and she's so skinny, I just, I can't stand that. It's like, put a little bit. Put a little bit of meat on your bones, you know? <laughs> well, it's funny. You, you mentioned Jackie Chan, and, and because of him, that was my introduction to Michelle Yeoh, who uh, yes, is— Yes, I love her. Yes, and, you know, the yes. the woman the woman put a motorcycle onto a moving train. Yeah, so, that is badass. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And and as a kid, I, I grew up loving the films of Pam Greer, and they were these were ladies that weren't waiting to be rescued. They weren't uh, the wife. Uh, they were They were exactly. taking charge in their own way as well. Mm-hmm. I love that. So, I really admire that. I just admire strong women in general. Like recently, I've just had a strong liking towards Jane Fonda because I just love her acting. I love that she's succeeded in every part of her life, and I just love that strong, strong woman. Yep. And she had she was like the girl. She had the ingenue roles in the '60s, and you know, yeah. even especially when your husband is a director, and then to be able to break from that. And yeah. you know, on and off screen, that you know, exactly. it it took it took some guts. It took some serious. Uh, exactly. So, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna put you on the spot. Do you remember the first movie you and Robert watched together? Oh man, it's like the, oh, it's like the newlywed man. game. <laughs> I know. Wow, I have a horrible memory. Um, movie? I do not remember movie. I okay. remember the first play we watched together. What 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 was it? We watched Wicked together for the first time. Oh, good choice. Yeah, yeah it was really good. And Broadway, so it was amazing. Mm-hmm. So you didn't have I to... I have to ask him that question. I don't think he'll even remember that. Well, that's okay. Just uh, yeah. it, was, it was worth a shot. So yeah. Now, um, if, if, do you when there's a film like The Wrestler or some of the other ones? Do, I mean, do you do you do you watch wrestling in cinema? Um, we did watch The Wrestler. Mm-hmm. I actually, I thought it was pretty accurate, but it was, to me, it was a little depressing. Well, yeah, and it is. It's, yeah, it's very depressing, and oh, it, it kind of touches a soft spot because you know that there's other wrestlers you know personally right. that are in that position, and uh, I, it really did touch me. You can definitely relate. Um no, I didn't. I haven't watched. Did I watch Ready to Rumble? I mean, that was more of a comedy, and I don't think I, I watched part of that movie. Um, I'll try to. I haven't watched every Rock film, you know. And right. I worked with him. I've watched only probably maybe thirty percent of his films. So no, not all the time. The film itself has to interest me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't necessarily just go out and watch it just because I worked with someone. I haven't watched any of the John Cena movies. Okay. I haven't really heard great things, so um, yeah, and that's about it. But Dwayne, I think some of his movies have been outstanding. Well, he's been able to take he's been able to take his persona and and switch. I mean, there's there there's gotten to a point, and the film critics and I have talked about this that we don't need to call him The Rock anymore, movie wise. He's Dwayne, yes. he's Dwayne, Dwayne Johnson. Johnson. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. He's so gifted, and he's played different roles, you know, and he's gone outside the box. So I think he's pretty much proven himself. Yeah. So yeah. I say, what 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 new movies have you watched recently? We just watched yesterday, Twelve Years a Slave. Ooh. Uh, yeah, that was a little depressing too. <laughs> <laughs> but but needed, so, I think needed that. But it was great. 
it, it was great. I mean, I thought Michael Fassbender was amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know the woman's role who played opposite uh, of him. The Did you watch the movie? Yeah, I have. Um, trust me, we're trying to remember, learn to say her name as well. It took us years to say Chiwetel Ejiofor correctly, so we'll okay. we'll get there. The one that played the slave. Yeah, she's she's. Be, yeah. A lot of people are already talking about her maybe getting a Best Supporting Actress nomination. So oh, she was outstanding. And outstanding. One anyway. of the one of the benefits of getting the award is we get to pronounce your name correctly. So that's yes. that's what we're shooting for. <laughs> I won't even try. <laughs> and then we watched Hunger Games. Uh, in the past week. Go see a good movie. You deserve it. Don't forget, Indie Film Fest is still happening through July 24th. Go to IndieFilmFest.org for more information. And thank you for listening. You're listening to Film Sociology, a film talk show here on WFYI HD to the Point and WFYI.org. Good afternoon, Fort Myers. Good afternoon, California. Good afternoon, Michigan.